I invite you to turn with me to two places in Scripture. First, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. If you roughly open your Bibles in half, you'll get to Isaiah probably. The next book is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, and then we'll uh, go to Hebrews and chapter 8. Jeremiah 31, and we begin at verse 31, reading only through to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31, listen, this is God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, read the entire chapter. Again, it's God's word. Listen. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. 
Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, it happens to the best of us. We run out of the house and we forget our keys. We get home from the grocery store to discover we forgot the milk. We meet people we haven't seen in a while and we forget their names. Apparently, I'm told, forgetfulness is a sure sign of aging. But it does happen to all of us. Failing memories are, for us, a constant source of frustration. We know it's in there somewhere. We just can't dredge it up. We tend to think of remembering and forgetting as individual experiences. We each remember or forget our own uh, kinds of things. But as we read through the Bible, we begin to discover that forgetting and remembering are just as easily used to describe the corporate life. Think of the many feasts and the festivals the nation of Israel was to observe, sacrifices they were to offer, monuments they were to construct, all designed to remind them of God's great and mighty acts in their past, that those memories of who God is and what He had done would shape the way they lived in the present and would cause them to trust in Him in the future. All those sacrifices, those monuments, those feasts were constant reminders of God's faithfulness to His promises to His people that He would deliver them and that He would destroy His enemies. These were all acts that were intended to shape their behavior, that they might live, that they might look, that they would remember what he had done. One writer puts it this way, which I find so very helpful. Israel was intended to walk backwards into the future. Now, this idea isn't all that strange to us, is it? We have national days of remembrance We have monuments that are uh, inscribed with, we will never forget, but we usually do. English writer and poet Samuel Johnson famously claimed, people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. People need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. We need to be reminded of what we already know just as much or perhaps more than what we don't know yet. But the question for us today is, can forgetting ever be a good thing? If you're just uh, visiting with us today and, and you're uh, wondering what this is all about, we have been asking and answering the question, what does God say He does with our sin? We've been trying to flesh out or expand on uh, the biblical imageries and pictures of what it means to be forgiven. When we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, what does that even mean? And God helps us by giving us all kinds of word pictures from all different parts of life. So we learn, for example, that God casts our sin into the depths of the sea. It's a burden we carried, and He drops it into the water. We learn sin is pollution or filth or dirt, and God washes us or He cleanses us. 
And last week we learned that sin is that object that stands between us and God, that God picks up, bundles up, sweeps into one place, and carries away as far from us as the east is from the west. Well, morning, uh, this morning we have more good news. God tells us he, uh, His forgiveness of our sins includes this picture of Him remembering our sin no more. In our text here in Hebrews chapter 8, that uh, second to last verse is a part of that extended quotation from Jer Jeremiah 31. And very briefly, the prophet Jeremiah was called on by God to give warning to the southern kingdom, to Judah, uh, about what God would do to them as he handed them over to their enemies who would destroy the city of Jerusalem, tear down the palace, destroy the temple, and take the people captive into exile all on account of their sin, for violating that covenant relationship that he had established with them. And a violation that especially revolves around their forgetting the Lord, forgetting what he had done for them, forgetting how he would sustain them in the present, forgetting how they could trust him as they faced life, forgetting to do what he had commanded them to do. Jeremiah, though, was also a prophet who was called by, on by God to describe to God's people what God would do for them as he remembers them when they're in exile. And the resultant work of his remembering is the restoration of a relationship established on better terms. And so the author of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, describes for us what we now know that this new covenant arrangement is put into effect in the coming, the life, the sacrificial death, the glorious resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The contrast in Hebrews on the old covenant and its daily, yearly sacrifices performed by priests who needed additionally to sacrifice for themselves, that is contrasted with what God does in Jesus. You see, that old system that on the face of it is largely external and was decidedly powerless to change people from within, which of course is our real problem just as it, as it was theirs. And so God, through Jeremiah, promised Jesus, as described in Hebrews, delivered. As God promised in Jeremiah, Jesus delivers, as described in Hebrews. And he says this because he did this. God will and has done away with your sin through the sacrifice of God, so much so that God can say, without fingers crossed, without scare quotes, without an asterisk, I will remember their sins no more. Let's explore what that means, will we? Shall we? Uh, and how it's even possible and how this shapes the way we live. First, what does this mean? What does it really mean that God remembers our sins no more? Probably helpful for us at this point to look at the positive side of this. What does it mean that God remembers? 
Well, the word remember occurs in the Bible almost always in the context of what I've already mentioned, God's covenant relationship with us. God's people, for example, are called to remember God, to remember His mighty acts, to remember His faithfulness, to remember His laws. But so often, as here, God is the subject of the remembering. He's the one who is or who is not remembering. And when God remembers in the Bible, there are at least three things that are always at the forefront. When we are told God remembers, we're to sit up and pay attention. This is going to be a significant, notable event. Second, when God remembers, He is remembering primarily in the context of His covenant promises. He's remembering His promises to His people, and He's remembering His people to whom He made those promises. And third, when God remembers, something happens. When God remembers, God acts. Because God does what He said He would do. And his remembering prompts his action, which is another way to say his act of remembering renews that particular line in the story of his salvation that for a time at least seemed to be on pause. Here's an example taken from Genesis 8. Noah and his family and all the animals are bobbing around like a cork in the waters of God's judgment God is cleansing the earth of sin, as we can clearly understand, in a, an external kind of washing. And then we read that God remembered Noah and the animals in the ark. Had God forgotten them? That's unlikely. But the attention in the storyline was on God's judgment in the water. And now in this moment of divine remembering, it's as if everything else fades into existence. We are having the spotlight shining on, on that ark, bobbing in the water with Noah, his family, and the animals in it. And everything else is fading. And the almighty, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-sufficient God turns his attention from that act of judgment to focus again on his act of mercy and salvation of Noah and all the contents of the ark. Because for God to remember is for God to act. He remembers his people. He remembers his love of them, his promises to them, and his purposes for them. And all that propels him into the next new action. So in Genesis 8, he remembered Noah and the animals, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. You can multiply the examples as you read through the Bible of God remembering and God acting. And we are to think again of his remembering in the context of his relationship, his covenant dealings with his people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that sometimes God remembers for good. God remembers leading to the, his display of covenant blessings. But sometimes God remembers in the context of covenant curses, the other half or side of that relationship. 
He remembers in mercy and love as he did with uh, Noah, but he also remembers his covenant promises to punish sin, which is what he's doing in the days of Jeremiah. Well, that's all good and well to describe what God does when he remembers, but our text says, I will remember your sins no more. Our all-knowing, all-powerful, great God, we wonder, does he have amnesia? Is he subject to periods of forgetfulness? Does he suffer somehow from the effects of sin and age that seem to uh, inhibit our ability to remember? Or can we say that when he remembers our sin no more, he intentionally and deliberately chooses to put them out of his memory? And as he intentionally and deliberately puts them out of his memory, he looks at us differently. And he acts according, uh, toward us accordingly. In other words, he decides intentionally, deliberately to put his sins, our sins out of his memory, and he chooses intentionally and deliberately not to act on them as he otherwise would. So we can say, when it comes to our sins, when he forgives us, he doesn't revisit them. He doesn't reach back to retrieve them. He doesn't pull them out of the bag and polish them up or place them on a shelf to admire them or, or throw them in our face to remind us. Those sins no longer exist. How is this possible? I said last week it's difficult for us to believe God when he says, I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. It's just difficult to believe that. I think it's even harder to believe God when he says, I will remember your sin no more. How can an all-knowing, all-seeing God, one who is not subject to the degenerating effects of age, or to the limitations or the degradation of our gray matter, all the things that frustrate us with our inability to remember names or events or keys or milk. In other words, how can an all-knowing God who is not subject to the effects of creaturely limits, never mind the effects of the fall, the effects of aging or sin that cause memories to fade and, and to fail. You can sense the, the challenge these questions present to theologians of every ability, including you all. How can this God say he remembers sins no more? Well, there are a few layers uh, to this question I want to roll out for you. The short answer, of course, is Jesus. But let's look at the layers. Hebrews is telling us that Old Covenant administration was marked by the external acts of sacrifice, the many sacrifices of bulls and goats that were not only unable to take away sins, but they were actually daily, regular, 
monthly, yearly reminders of sin. In their inability to take away sin and the fact that they had to be repeated over and over and over again, they actually reminded God's people of their sin. On the other hand, the new administration is defined by the perfect, complete, and more to the point here in Hebrews chapter 8, the once for all sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were, were ongoing and they reminded people of their sin. But because of the one sacrifice of Christ, by God's design, there's no longer any reminder of sin to God's mind by His design and choice. And when there's no longer any reminders of our sin, He can and He has chosen to remember our sins no more. Because the sin and the memory of sin are obliterated in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. And the point of Hebrews chapter 8 especially, and of the whole book, and of the whole Bible, is that the sufficiency of that one sacrifice means there's no memory of the sin that made the sacrifice necessary, or even of the sins done away with by that sacrifice. And behind this, there's even another layer. There's, a, there's still more because we tend to think of this in terms of its benefit to us. This is good news. God doesn't remember our sins. And surely, this is good news to us. But listen to Isaiah 43, 24. The Lord says, you have burdened me with your sins. He's talking to his people. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God being burdened, wearied by our sins and iniquities. And then he says, but I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You see, God chooses not to remember our sins, not just because it's good for us, but because not remembering our sins perfectly fits His person and His plan. He's a gracious God. He is faithful to His word to us. He's a God of fidelity to Himself, to His commitments, to His own integrity. He's jealous to preserve His own reputation and so Isaiah 43, 24 is reminding us that he finds reasons from within himself for the promotion of his own glory, for his own sake, to remember our sins no more. It's good for us, but it pleases God in and of himself to do it this way. He had said, sins must be punished. He said there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, although sacrifices were intended to point to and picture something else. Because he also said his son would stand in the place of his people. His blood would be sufficient to take away the punishment so that he can now add, and I will remember their sins no more. 
So just as an all-seeing God can remove sin as far away from us as the east is from the west, because that's what he says he will do. So an all-knowing God can remember our sins no more, because that's what he said he has done in Christ and that one time perfect sacrifice. It pleases him to do this. And God always does what he pleases. We're probably not going to be able to wrap our minds around all that. That God is all-knowing. And that God says he forgets. That God is all-seeing and yet he says he removes. But somehow this pleases God. And somehow he says it's possible. And somehow it has, it has, not somehow, in every way, it has to do with what Christ has accomplished. Jesus, who is God's act of remembering all of his promises in the Old Testament. And Jesus, who is God's act of dealing with sin. Jesus, who is that perfect sacrifice who once for all actually puts legs on God's promise and God's commitment and God's word to say, I will remember their sins no more. And if all that is true, if it's because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, by which God says, I will remember their sins no more, how shall we live? I want to encourage you to remember these three ways, three possible responses for you. First and as always, how can we, as we ponder what God is doing when he says, I will remember your sins no more, how can we not praise him? How can we not praise him for his perfect plan of salvation uh, that our all-knowing God sovereignly chooses to remember our sins no more when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, laying hold of the blessings and of Jesus himself who has offered himself for us? How could we not praise the God who would include us as objects of his mercy so that we might be among those of whom he says, your sin I will remember no more? How can we not respond with joy and with praise? But secondly, I want you to remember to live in the joy of a clear conscience. You see, if you are trusting in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, God forgives you. And His forgiveness apparently includes His lack of remembering your sins. If you're trusting in Christ, you repent of your sin, laying a hold of Jesus. God says, I forgive you, and part of what it means to forgive you is, I will remember your sins no more. And if God chooses not to remember your sins because there's no longer any need for a sacrifice for them, there really is no need for a further sacrifice from sin. And I know that you believe that. 
But don't we, ourselves, don't others, doesn't the devil want to try to convince us that they're still present, still part of us? We need to somehow pay for them. We need to pay by our performance, by doing better, by beating ourselves up just a little bit, by wallowing in guilt and in shame. If our sins are properly laid on Jesus in our repentance of them and on our faith in him, God has chosen to forget your sins. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you live in the joy of a clear conscience? Please understand, so much more can be said about how sin patterns from the past often continue in our lives. We're living in this ongoing sanctification, but shouldn't you also recognize, be able to pray with the psalmist, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. Can't you live with a joy of a clean conscience? Praise God. Live with joy. And then thirdly, tell others. Tell others. We are told, and I think it's true, we live in a therapeutic culture. People, perhaps more than in at least recent generations, are mindful of their feelings. It's not all bad. But notice, people are dissatisfied or depressed or discouraged by their past performance. Some are paralyzed by guilt and shame. Some live in the constant cloud of painful memories of past and even present sin. We, more than anyone, have answers to this problem. Because God has for us opened the blinds and allows us to see the light of the good news of Jesus Christ in whom we have forgiveness of sins and the promise attached to it, inseparable from it, that God remembers our sin no more. In a moment, we're going to come to this table. And what does Jesus tell us about this meal? But that it is a sign of the same new covenant he came to initiate and inaugurate and to fulfill in every way. Described in Hebrews 8 here, he came to establish this new covenant and it's in his blood. And we are to eat, we're to drink. And we're to do that, notice, in remembrance of him. When we remember... Like God, we act. Because we remember what God has done for us in the past. And unlike our financial advisor, God's past performance is predictive of future success. So we rest in what He's done. We look to Him in faith to act in the present, living as if our sins really are forgotten because God says they are. And we trust in the future that the same God will sustain us through times of trial and suffering, times of temptation and discouragement, but bringing us across the, across the finish line as he has done for others 
we have watched and witnessed. God is faithful, and he remembers your sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your great promises. And as difficult as it might be for us to wrap our minds around your sovereign knowledge of all things and your expressed intention to forget or to not remember our sins no more. We stand in amazement and wonder. We marvel at the mystery, but we also take you for your word. We embrace it. We live in joy. We praise you. And you've inspired us again today to tell others. Hear our prayer. Receive our thanks. We offer it in Jesus' name. We all say together, amen.